0: them as you see them after service today. Well, it is great to be with you. Uh, for those of you who are newer, I'm Fitz. I'm the lead minister here. I have the privilege to serve in this church. And it is just great to see so many of you here in person, some of you joining us online. And I want to let you know a little bit about myself. When, when I was younger, um, I loved playing with the uh the the puzzle books, right? Like the crossword puzzles, the seek and find where you have the picture that has all the other pictures hidden inside of it, the connect the dots and all those and the the crosswords and the word search. Anybody else enjoy playing with those from your kid? Any of you still enjoy this? Like I never grew out of that, okay? So when my kids were little and they were able to certain in those things, I would buy those for my kids, 10 or 10 kids. But really, it was an excuse for me to keep like, oh, this is fun, like reliving my youth. And then it's just become something that my kids and I still do together, especially my daughter, Lydia. She is my seek and find buddy. That That is like a daddy-daughter thing. And you don't mess with our book. Like if you pick that thing up and start doing it you will face the wrath, all right? So, uh, but it's great. And somewhere along the lines, things morphed for me where it became less about the puzzles and more about the time with my kids. But I still enjoy them. And, and I realized this over the years, that there are, there's a transferable concept in so many things in life. And so that seek and find thing actually helps us when we come to the Bible, And it's not, and let me make sure you're clear on this. It's not because the Bible is filled with like hidden mysteries that we have to somehow unravel, that it's all coded. And like, no, God doesn't use secondary coded language and mysteries and all that kind of stuff. His message is not hidden in the word. It's embedded in the word, but it's not hidden from us. So we don't have to like try and like seek it out for what's mysterious. God's pretty straightforward in his communication. But we do have this problem where he was straightforward in his communication to a certain people at a certain time in a certain context and in a certain place with a culture that had its own customs. And we are not those people in that place at that time with that culture and that custom. So here we are thousands of years later figuring out what God said then and there to those people. And it's helpful for us to apply that seek and find language so we can understand what God is speaking to us. We seek the meaning of Scripture in its original context to find its application. I'd say it this way. It's always a dangerous place to begin Bible study by saying, well, what does this mean to me? It's always a better thing to say, what did this mean to them? What did this mean then and there to them? And when I uncover that, then I'll know... What it means to me otherwise we 're going to misapply god 's word we 'll find the wrong things we 'll we'll read our culture into a culture from two thousand years ago, so for example, the word "tweet" several years ago, the word "tweet meant the noise a bird made right it was a, it was a bird noise now a tweet. It's a short phrase posted on social media to Twitter, except Twitter is no longer called Twitter. It's now called X, formerly known as Twitter. And I'm not even sure if a tweet is still called a tweet. I don't know. in like, all of that has taken place in 20 years. So imagine what's taken place in the last 2,000 years. So we seek the meaning in its original context to find the application for them, and then we know the application for us. Similarly, crosswords are real helpful. I would encourage you to look at Jesus' last words on the cross and see what he was speaking from there. We actually did that at Easter a couple years ago. Connect the dots is another helpful thing when we come to scripture. You guys remember the connect the dots? The dots are either alphabetical or they're numerical and you connect from one to the other and it reveals the bigger picture. And it's like, oh, then you have the aha moment. Well, that's helpful for us when we come to the Bible. Because the Bible is less of a book and it's more of a library. It's a collection of about 66 different letters or documents or small books written by different authors uh, in different genres at different times over hundreds of years. But they all tell one story. From beginning to end, Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Revelation, the last book in the Bible, they tell the same story of God's interaction with humanity. And they give us a window, a picture into different moments of that interaction. And they all point to one person, Jesus. But when we connect the dots from book to book, from what's said in one part of the Bible to what's said in another part, we see the big picture even more. Each book helps us see the picture of who God is. But when we connect them together, that picture becomes bigger. We get a better understanding of who God is, who we are, how this world works. So, for example, if we look at the, the garden, right? you got a garden in Genesis, a Garden of Eden. You connect the dots to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed the night before he was, or the night he was arrested, the night he was betrayed. Or you take a look at the tree that is in Genesis at the very beginning, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you fast forward to the tree at the end of the book, the tree of life. And you find their connection. What you'll find is they both have branches that run through the cross. The tree sacrificed For our Savior's sacrifice. And again and again, we'll find these dots to connect. So today, we're just going to do a little connect the dot with some of the events around Jesus' birth to some of the events around Jesus' death. And we're going to look in Matthew's gospel to do that. Now, gospel... If you're new or newer to church, that might sound like a pretty churchy word. We don't use gospel much in our language, but the church uses it a lot, but it actually did not begin as a church word. In fact, gospel was a word in the culture and it simply means good news. More accurately, it's a proclamation or an announcement of good news. So when the New Testament, the portion of the Bible that was written after Jesus lived at that time, the Romans were in charge, right? You had the Roman empire and the Roman empire, whenever something worth celebrating would happen, the Caesar or the king would announce it. He would gospel it as a proclamation and announcement. So they might say, oh, we just defeated another nation, blow the trumpets. And then they gospel this out. Yes, you're welcome. For that. They gospel this out and we defeated the enemy, you know, or blow the trumpet. Caesar has had a son and there's this gospel this proclamation this announcement this good news for the kingdom or so they thought right so when this word this gospel this proclamation announcement of good news when the church was just getting started they adopted that word for talking about Jesus and the first four books of the of the New Testament Matthew Mark Luke and John when those books were written, they became known as the Gospels, an announcement, a proclamation of the good news of Jesus' life. And so if you were to read one of those books, it's what you're reading. It's the announcement of the good news about Jesus and what he means to us. And Matthew was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. He was a student of Jesus. And he begins his Gospel, proclamation, announcement of the good news of Jesus. He begins it with the story of Jesus' birth. And in that, he begins actually with the genealogy, the family tree. And in the family tree, he shows where Mary shows up. So you got Mary. And then he tells the story of how Mary became miraculously pregnant with Jesus. But how Mary's fiance, Joseph, wasn't buying the miraculous baby story that Mary was telling him. And that's where we'll pick it up today. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. An angel came. It says, Joseph, son of David... Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, when the angel speaks to you, you listen. <laughs> and the angel goes on. He said, she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill what the Lord's message had been through his prophet Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Wow. And so Matthew then continues on a little later in his gospel. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from Eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> we don't really know who these wise men are. And we'll We're not sure if there were only three of them, but if there were, they came with an entourage. What we do know is that these magi, as they're referred to in the original language, they're a bit mysterious. They might be royalty, priests, kings, something, but they're a big deal. They show up with an entourage and they show up wanting to find Jesus. And so they arrive in Jerusalem and they ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Well, then they Kind of figure out, okay, he was born in this town, Bethlehem. They trek to Bethlehem and they find where Jesus is. So they enter the house and they saw the child with his mommy, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts are expensive and costly and rare. These are gifts for a king. Myrrh especially has this double meaning. Myrrh was a spice used For oil, for anointing a king. When someone would become king, they would place oil on their head to cover them and anoint them. That was a a proclamation, a sign that they are now the king. Myrrh was also used as a burial spice. A bit foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus. So here, Matthew is introducing Jesus as king. Like kingly language permeates Matthew's proclamation of Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, he's king. And Jesus as king is a theme that runs throughout the gospel. And you see that Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom. His kingdom is here. He's encouraging us to usher in that kingdom. And he himself is ushering in the kingdom. And he is the king of that kingdom. Well, Jesus is king, and we find that this happened during the reign of King Herod. But Herod was a king set up by Rome over that area. And Herod hears these Easterners coming to worship another king. Herod doesn't like that. He's haunted he's because this other king is from another kingdom, and it's not of his bloodline. That's a competing king in a competing kingdom. Herod's not having anything to do with that. So he orders that all the young boys aged two and younger in that area of Bethlehem Slaughtered, and Jesus' parents receive a visit from an angel telling them what's up and to flee. So they take Jesus and they flee to Egypt. Now there are so many dots to connect in this story. Let me connect just one for us, real quick. If we were to back up a couple thousand years in the story, pardon me. If we were to back up a couple thousand years in the story, we'll find that God's people, the Israelites, had been enslaved in Egypt under the pharaoh the king of egypt who has set himself up as a rival king to god and to god's people and so moses goes to pharaoh says hey god says let my people go they argue about it and god sends plague after plague after plague the 10th plague to get the pharaoh the king's attention is the death of the firstborn sons of egypt god protects his people the israelites the firstborn sons of egypt are killed It gets the pharaoh king's attention. He lets God's people go, at least temporarily, tries to chase them through a parted Red Sea. Bad day for the Egyptians, good day for God's people. And God's people flee and eventually make their way to the promised land, to the area where Jesus is born. So here we go. Jesus is in that area. He's born, and his parents flee from another king, slaughtering some kids back to Egypt. What? Why these dots? What is God doing here? Two things. One, God is saying that salvation will require sacrifice. Two, God is saying that he is the king who will not compete with any earthly king. He is the only king of creation, and we must follow him. So if we fast forward in this story a bit, it becomes even more clear. We fast forward, and we pick it up at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been arrested He's been put through a mock trial. He's been found guilty of heresy. He's proclaimed to be God. And so he's sentenced to death by crucifixion. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and they called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Going on in the text. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter, a crown, a scarlet robe, a scepter. Those are all images of kingship, kingly images, but not in the way fit for a true king. Crown of thorns placed on his head. They knelt before him in mockery. And they taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him. They grabbed the stick and they struck him on the head with it. Then they were finally tired of mocking him. They took off the robe, put his own clothes on him again, and they led him away to be crucified. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but When he tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified, one on his right, the other on his left. And when we think of the crucifixion, we tend to focus on the physical elements of it. And for sure, Jesus faced a brutal physical pain, miserable, terrible, unbearable, but that was not the main point. In fact, his physical pain. And Jesus did suffer physically for us. That should stir something in all of us. But his physical pain was not the main point. And it doesn't even come close to the spiritual pain Jesus endured. Because for the first time in all of eternity, the son is separated from the father. The first time in all of eternity, Jesus separated in a brutal, painful way from his dad. And the trinity, the Godhead, is torn asunder. Matthew continues on. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Huh. Well, then if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. Even the chief priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders, they mocked Jesus too. He saved others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Really? Let him come down from the cross right now. We'll believe in him then. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed and mocked him in the same way, at least initially. In his book, Quest 52, which we've been using this year as a devotional guide to help us navigate our way through the life of Jesus to get to know him better. We're in week 49 out of 52 weeks, and the year is almost over. Church, has this been a good resource for you? Has this been helpful for you? I hope. I hope. It has for me. Um, I hope it has been for you. And if you've found this to be a helpful resource, I just, on an aside, want to encourage you We still have some copies left. Purchase them, give them as gifts at Christmas and then offer to walk through this with somebody in the coming year. It's okay to go back through this again. In fact, you will learn even more your second time through. Um, If you've been with us and you've just resisted or you haven't got a copy, I encourage you to do it. It's still worth the investment. It's still worth the investment of time and reading it. It's gonna help you. And if you're newer to us, get one. There's only a few weeks left, but just jump in right where we are and then start your new year going through this. But in this, Mark asks a question at the beginning of each chapter. And his question for this week, week 49, is this, why did Jesus die? And that's a really great question. Because all the people surrounding Jesus at the crucifixion did not understand the answer to this. They did not understand why Jesus was dying. They missed the point. I mean, they kept saying... Go ahead and come down off the cross and then we'll believe you. Come down off the cross and save yourself. Problem is, Jesus' goal was never to save himself. Jesus actually came down from heaven to go up on the cross. I mean, we we read this earlier in the gospel, right? He came to save his people from their sins. Not to save himself, but to give himself to save us, to save them. So that's what Jesus is about. That's why he died. The cross is why he came. So he wasn't going to come down off the cross. He had come down from heaven. They missed that part. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God came down to us so that he could go up on the cross. This is what God is up to in that moment. There's a word that we use in theology, in the study of God. It's become a churchy word. It's not Owned by the church. I mean, it's a cultural word, but we just use it more in the church. The word is atone. And to atone for something means to restore relationship. If there's a break in relationship, to atone for it means to restore that relationship by fixing whatever the problem is, by removing whatever the barrier has been that's caused the breakage in relationship. Think of it this way. If you have two people and there's a rift in the relationship, they're torn apart. But when you atone for it, you bring them back together at one. You're at one with the other person again. That's what atonement means is to be at one with again. We were at one with God before sin. And we were not God, but we had a good relationship with God. And then sin breaks that relationship. What Jesus did on the cross was to atone for our sin, to substitute himself, to take our place, to take our penalty, to take on our sin. Scripture tells us he became sin, not just that he took sin on, but he became sin for us to pay the death penalty our sin demanded. To atone for that, to restore us to right relationship with God. He paid the ransom to buy us back from the forces of hell. Jesus was restoring our relationship This is what he was doing on the cross This is why he came And because he was God in the flesh Because he was human He could pay the human Penalty Our sin demanded And because he's God He could pay it fully for all of us And so the atonement of the cross Is the first part Of the good news Come down and save yourself they said. What they didn't realize is if Jesus would have climbed off the cross and saved himself, they may have believed, that they would not be saved. He had to die so that we could live. That was the transactional aspect of the cross, is he had to die so that we could live. When my dad died a few years ago, I, uh, I inherited some of his bookends. He had these two wooden elephant bookends, always displayed prominently and holding together some of his favorite books. And from the time I was a little kid, I thought they were cool. Now that I have them, they don't look as cool as they did when I was little. (laughs) If you saw them, you might not think they were much, you know, nothing special to them. But I do appreciate the craftsmanship, and obviously I appreciate the sentimentality of it. But even more now, I've grown to appreciate the functionality of it. Because you know what bookends do, right? Bookends hold together everything that's between them. They hold together what's in the middle. And that's what Mark, or Mark, that's what, Mark does this in his gospel too, but that's what Matthew is doing in his gospel here, is he's bookending his gospel with these two ideas that hold together everything that comes between them. So if you read the gospel of Matthew, which I encourage you to do sometime during this Christmas season, take a couple hours, read through it, and just get to know Jesus in one setting. But as you do, notice that these two things bookend it, King and Savior. And actually, King and Savior are the two things that are on Both ends of each. So there's king and savior and king and savior. Those are the bookends. Because what we find is that Jesus is the savior king. That's what Matthew is proclaiming to us. That's the good news. That Jesus is the savior king. He draws these parallels between events surrounding Jesus' birth and the events surrounding Jesus' death. He says, you know, at the birth, foreigners came from far off lands. To bow down and worship Jesus as king. But at his death, Jesus returned to the epicenter of religion for his own people. And they mocked him as king at his death. As a baby, Jesus' parents fled to save the life of their son. So that when he was older as a man, he would choose to die to save all of us from our sin. At Christmas, Jesus came. God himself wrapped in flesh in our likeness, in our image, so that he could restore to us his image, the image we are created in, that we bear the image of God, but it's been distorted by sin. So he was born in our image to restore his image to us. At Christmas, we celebrate that God came into this world as a human. I love what what Matthew does in his gospel. He's just connecting the dots between the cradle and the And the cross between Christmas and Easter, we celebrate at Christmas the story of Mary and Joseph and their baby boy born in the manger. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Savior King. And we celebrate Jesus' birth because of why he died. All right, keep that in mind as you celebrate Christmas this year. We celebrate his birth because of why he died. And what that means is that the cross casts a shadow on the manger. That the cross casts a shadow, the crying of the newborn baby boy. (laughs) Let me just... Listen, I know the song says, no crying he made. That's a sweet lyric to sing. But Jesus became fully human and remained fully God. But it's fully human. I've never met an infant that did not cry. Right? Any of y'all? parents? So I'm pretty sure Mary and Joseph were changing some wet diapers and poopy diapers and dealing with some crying. And they were just like, oh, wow. Okay. So this is how God, how humbly God chose to enter the world. But the crying of that newborn babe in the manger foreshadowed the suffering of the son of God being sacrificed for our sin. The pain of childbirth pointing to the pain of crucifixion to give us a new birth and a new life in him. The beauty and simplicity of the manger, how Jesus came quietly, covertly, humbly with no human royal proclamation. The angels proclaimed, but no human royal proclamation, no fanfare, no parade, no palace. But yet at his death, A trial in the palace, the parade to the cross, the proclamation of king, and then he's put on display naked on a cross for everyone to see. Jesus arrived as no king would arrive, but he died as no king of creation should die. See, at Christmas, we celebrate that God came to be with us because at Easter, he made a way for us to be with him. He came to us at Christmas so that at Easter, he could make a way for us to be with him in the paradise of peace for eternity. This is why we celebrate his life. And the good news is not just that Jesus came to us or not just that Jesus died for us, but that Jesus rose from the grave, that he rose victorious, that he defeated death, that he conquered the grave, that he broke the grave in essence, that he defeated all the demons of hell and he conquered sin. And then as he rose from the grave, he then ascended to heaven to reclaim his rightful place as the king over all creation. That that is the good news, that Jesus is alive, that the king is alive and he is on his throne. That's the gospel, that's the proclamation. The king is on his throne still today. But why does this matter? Like, interesting, right? Yay, connect some dots. Because if Jesus is only Savior and not King, then saving us didn't mean anything. He really couldn't. If he is not the King on the throne of all creation, then he does not have the power nor the authority to actually save us. That word atonement that we used, it doesn't matter then, right? If Jesus, if you see him only as Savior, let me just say it this way, let's make it personal. If you only see Jesus as Savior and not as King... You're missing it. Because if Jesus is not the king of your life, then you've not allowed him to save you in your life. See, there are no havesies with this one. Jesus is the savior king. It's a package deal. And here's why this matters, because he saves us by leading us. This word atonement that we talked about a moment ago. To atone for our sin means nothing if he is not enthroned as King. If Jesus is not the King of your life, He is not atoned for the sins in your life. If you do not follow Him and surrender to Him and allow Him to lead you, you've not really allowed Him to save you. Because the way Jesus saves us is not only by dying for us, but by leading us. By leading us daily from a sin soaked life into his new life for us. The way the king saves, it's the king leads victoriously. It's not just about a moment on a cross. That's a truncated gospel. It's about a king on the throne. That's the fullness of the gospel. See the greatest sin any of us has, all the other sins point to this. It's the original sin is that we wanna be the one on the throne that we want to be the one in charge of our life, that we want to be the one making all the decisions. It's real easy to say, yes, Jesus, save me, please. Thank you. All right, I got it from here. Like, I'll take the reins back. And when I mess things up, you wash away the guilt, you take away the bad things, but let me do the leading. Let me be in the in the driver's seat. That's the human tendency. That's where all sin is born, is that we want to be the kings or the queens of our own life. We want to be in charge. We want to sit on the throne. And so what Jesus does as king is he... He says, no, 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 that throne is mine. And you'll only lead yourself into destruction and dismay, disappointment, if you don't give that throne to me. So give me the throne, I will lead you. And here's the deal. We can trust the king who loves us enough to die for us. You wanna know why Jesus came? Well, he came to restore all that was broken, to restore all that had gone wrong in Eden, to establish his kingly reign over his creation. But the why of it, the motive for it was love. I mean, Jesus said it himself, John three sixteen. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave. He gave his one and only son, born innocent, wrapped in the flesh in a manger, to live a sinless life, to die a brutal death on the cross, and to resurrect victoriously, then to ascend triumphantly to heaven. And he's coming back momentarily to claim his own and take us home. you're out getting gifts this year, when you're writing the list of what you want for Christmas, be sure to take some time to reflect on what God has given us. The true gift of Christmas is that he gave his son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have life forever with him. See, we can trust Jesus to rescue us. But we gotta allow him to lead us. And if we trust him to save us, we can trust him to be the king. If we can trust him to atone for our sins, we can allow him to be on the throne in our life. Because a king who loves us enough to die for us, to give himself for us, to do all that Christ has done for us. A king that loves us like that is a good and kind and generous and merciful and grace-giving king who's worthy to be followed. And so this Christmas, don't just celebrate that he came. Don't even just celebrate that he then died. But celebrate who he is by surrendering to him and allowing him to be king in your life of every area in your life. Church, I'm gonna invite you in this moment to reflect on this. Take some time and just bow your head silently. We're gonna pray. I'm gonna prompt you in some prayer. So you can close your eyes, bow your head. And I just want you to reflect on some different areas in your life in this moment. And ask yourself, have you allowed Jesus to be the king of your family? And how you interact with family? Of all the relationships there? Is Jesus the king? Is Jesus the king in your friendships and your relationships? Friendly and more intimate? Allow Jesus to be the King of your finances, trusting Him and following Him. Be allowed Jesus to be the King of your body, of your fitness and your health, of your sleep and your schedule and your exercise. If you allow Jesus to be King over your food and your diet and all the other things you may ingest into your body. Have you allowed Jesus to be king over your entertainment and your hobbies and where you spend your time and who you spend your time with watching and listening to? Have you allowed Jesus to be the king of your employment and your paycheck and your work relationships and what you do for work and what you do at work? Have you surrendered it all to him Oh, God, in this moment, we know that that list could go on and on and on. And we acknowledge that too often we try to reclaim the throne that's worthy only of you. And so, Father, we we say sorry at the same time that we say thank you. Because we know you've forgiven us and we claim that forgiveness. But God, when we reclaim the throne, we know that it steals your glory and it only brings wreckage to us. But when you lead, you get the glory and it's better for us. What a beautiful way you've worked that out. So God, we ask that you would give us the wisdom, not just in this moment, but in every moment, to surrender our lives to you, that there might not be any area of our life where we have up the walls and guarded that from from your kingly lead God we we need you to be king over every area and so give us the wisdom to know with every decision with everything we do whether we're trying to reclaim the throne or not and when we do God give us the courage to surrender it to you God we thank you that you have given us Word and your spirit and your church to guide us and lead us and show us the way to go. Help us to be attuned to your spirit, to hear your voice. Help us to be people of your word, reading it and studying it. Help us to be people who are engaged with the church, allowing her to shape us and mold us and prompt us to follow your teachings. And God, give us the courage to bring our lives into alignment with you. But Jesus, lead us as king. Save us still, Lord. And in doing so, God, may the glory and the honor be yours. May the joy and the peace of being your sons and daughters, your royal family, may that be ours. And God, for any who are listening today who have not yet surrendered fully to you. God, may they do that. May they follow the example that we saw earlier in this service of people surrendering their lives in the water of baptism to put their old way of living to death, to come alive in a brand new life, to follow you as King and as Savior. God, may we follow you as King and Savior every day. But for those who've not yet done that, may today be their day. And we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, King Jesus.